Hey, all of you musicians out there. I want to play some tunes at the end of my podcast. So if you are a musician and you want your song played at the end of my show, head on over to my website, kyle.surf, and send it on over to me. I will give you credit in the podcast, and I will link to your band page on my website. As always, if you have feedback for the show, recommendations for new guests, want to send me some love mail, want to send me some hate mail, dick pics, whatever. Actually, save the dick pics. But anything else, head on over to my website and get in touch. I always love hearing from you. This episode is with Nick Strong's Fetich. Nick is the executive director of Save the Waves. They are an organization that protects coastal ecosystems around the world in partnership with local communities, utilizing a unique combination of protected areas, economics, and direct action. They're doing very important work. Uh, They keep our coastlines beautiful and pristine, and Nick is an awesome guy and a good friend of mine. So without further ado... Please welcome Nick Strong Svetich. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles. And thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah. Costa Rica is a great country. Yeah, I hadn't been there since I was 16, and I just went back on a trip there. It's amazing. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, the people are super cool. Their government is sane. They have no army. Yeah. They've done it really well. Uh, they've preserved a lot of the natural resources that they have. Very good vibes. I feel like it kind of went through like a like a weird dip, you know, in like the early 2000s. It was like, Costa Rica, Costa Rica, Costa Rica, buy your parcel now, Costa Rica. You know, like everybody was all stoked on moving down there. It's just like kind of tons of gringo things, and you saw it all the time, and you saw it like in surf all the time. You know, it was just like, it was the place to go and it was so awesome. And then it kind of like everyone forgot about it sort of after the, the crash here. And then it kind of went back to normal. Right. Well, and now the it spot is Nicaragua. You talk, you talk to all Mm -hmm. the, the weekend warriors, people who have one trip a year and they say, Oh yeah, we're going down to Nicaragua because everyone wants to be on that cool next spot. And then they'll yeah. forget about the original spot. G-Land is like that too. Mm-hmm. G-Land went through that big flux of it being the spot to go. And then people kind of forgot about it, but the wave's still there. Yeah. Or even like, I mean, a bunch of places. Like I was, I went to Playa Negra a while ago and there was like not really that many people there. And I was like, well, this wave's good. Yeah. Like, it's, no, it's a really good wave. And that whole area around yeah. it is super cool too. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not dangerous or seedy. Tamarindo no, it has used to be. Uh, yeah, yeah, it used to or be more. So I felt like when I I, w- I felt like I went there one time in the early two thousands and like October, and there was like no one around anywhere. And then I came back like six years later or something like that, and I was like, "What is this place? Oh, well, there's a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Like, you know, it was just sort of crazy." And then going back to Playa Negra, like there wasn't a bunch of craziness. Like it was really mallow and slow. Like, yeah. There was just nobody there. 
Yeah. There are big decisions that uh, developing communities need to make. And a lot of times those decisions need to make be made very quickly as they're having this influx of tourism because it could be for the few hundred years beforehand, everyone was a fisherman. Right. And that's how they made their money. And then all of a sudden you have gringos coming in with a ton of money. And um, it's... I'm... Uh, it's too bad that more places don't develop well. Mm-hmm. Well, I just don't, I think, you know, it goes back to, I feel like we've said this a million times on camera. You and I have talked about it a million times. It's like, you know, uh, they're, they don't, a lot of times people don't have a plan because they've never thought of what does like next year look like. Cause they're so used to being like, what do I need for my family in this week at the, you know, at the longest point. And so it's just sort of like, yeah, oh, this guy's got money. Oh, sweet. We'll give this away. And then so everything is just sort of a ramshackle, like kind of back of the envelope deal. And so there's never like, it only looks crappy when you stop and look around and you're like, what did we lose? Right. Well, you have places where gringos will come in and you'll say, what do you want, gringo? And the gringos will say, we want cocaine and hookers. We're on a surf yeah. trip. Woohoo. And then the local economy accommodates that, but it's not necessarily the best thing long-term for the local community. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what was that like? I don't even remember. Time seems to kind of just be hemorrhaging away here. So like five <laughs> years ago, we like had a beer and talked about the like Butler's curve of tourism, like super academic, like approach to, you know, how surf places change. And I think you, I think you see that just time over time, over time, over time again of like how places follow that model. And when you start thinking about it, I mean, not to get too meta, but you start thinking about like our society and how humans develop things. And now I feel like I read a, an article last night or something that was like the end of human employment. And it was like this whole thing that everything's going to be automated, you know, and you, then you pay people to just exist. And so it was like, have we, are we following Butler's curve of tourism as like, you know, a whole species as yeah. a society of like where we've evolved to where we don't have jobs in our own economy and we're just like, we get paid to exist and like buy stuff. Yeah. So well, it's, sort it's of, I mean, it, you look at it on a very real level. You think that truck drivers are going to be around in the next 50 years with, with automated cars. I mean, maybe 10. Yeah. I, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. But. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're going fast on these like self-driving cars, Yeah, you know, quickly. So it's sort of like, Dude, my friend has a car that you put it on cruise control and it s keeps the distance between your car and the next car in front of you. Yeah. So it'll slow oh, yeah. down or, or speed up depending on uh, the cars around you. There's all this, you know, AI stuff out there that, that's like super crazy. I mean, you go, if you go to some of those big tech company like headquarters and you see the stuff that's around, like you don't realize that we're already we're already 10 years ahead and we don't even know like the day to day person, you know, I think like, yeah, they have self-driving cars at Google. Like I went and I was like walking through the Google campus. I'm like, that guy's not driving, right. you know, and it's there, like it's working, you so know, or SpaceX. Like there's some crazy, there's like some crazy stuff that is so far advanced 
that, that we're going to learn about it in five years, but it definitely exists already. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the solutions of tomorrow, if you want to call them solutions are here today, that knowledge just isn't evenly distributed. So, uh, we, we kind of passed over Butler's curve of tourism yeah. for people who don't know that it's, um, it, it's a model for how tourism tends to play out in places mm-hmm. around the world. And the first step is that, um, you'll have these very early explorers, who will enter into a a society um, that is not catered to them. Let's say this is like the Nicaraguan uh, fishing community 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there were the early old expats who went down there and they bought land. Um, they got it before anything had been shifted to cater towards them. And then you have, and a lot of times those are surfers. They're explorers yep. who have come way before anyone else. And then, uh, what is the second part of the model? It's then you have, um, you have like the backpackers, then you have like the backpackers, right. Who aren't the full on feral expats, but they're still the early adopters who want to go to a place before it's known as the spot. And then there's this, this tipping point in Butler's curve of tourism where the economies start shifting towards tourism. Uh, and that's when all of the roads start getting paved and the hotels start going up and, uh, you see that happen in a lot of places like Bali and Costa Rica. And those are the pivotal moments for communities to really decide how it is that they want right. to develop. And unfortunately in Butler's curve of tourism, a lot of times there's this drop off point where th- the location isn't pristine anymore. And you mm-hmm. have this drop off of tourism after a number of years. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's mostly applies to like the tourism of, of, you know, wild areas, kind of national parks and things like that. But where you, you know, like you said, you have a couple people that are these explorers that are like interested in what's going on, having experience, people that fall in their footsteps that don't need a lot of infrastructure. They, they like a little bit of adventure, but they're not like, you know, living in a tent, like above G land or whatever. Yeah. You know, and then, then after that you get resorts. And so, but at a certain point, you, like you said, there's a, there's the tipping point where does the amount of people and the amount of infrastructure could destroy the thing that people came to, you know, came to see and experience. And so I think, I think that's interesting. And then, cause you see it just keep getting played out so many different times where then people like show up, and it's totally destroyed. So they go, I'm never coming back here. So, you know, the numbers of people drop off, the numbers of, you know, the expenditure drops off and the place itself suffers. And I think what's, what's interesting from like the surfing perspective is so many, you know, surfing is like a very finite resource when you think about waves, right? So the more people that you have there, the less people want to come because now it's crowded, you know? And it is literally like a mathematical thing. I thought about this on a plane one time. I feel like we're going to go into these little like crevices of like dumb, weird things. This is what what we do. I knew this is going to be a good one because normally we just sit down without mics and we have beers and we do this exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I did like a thing. I, I tried to figure out like how many breaks there were kind of like per continent. 
and like what the average wave period was and what were surfable hours per day. So like how many waves can be surfed <laughs> in the world, like over a year and then like multiply that by times surfers. Like I had a long plane fight, right? Oh, and, the, cause, and then I started thinking like, well, you know, how much would you pay to go on this trip? And like, so how much was that worth? So it was just kind of like this like random, you know, surfonomics weird stuff that like very few people think about but right but i think that uh getting into surfonomics is really important because most people don't understand that if you don't value a wave if you don't value the the natural beauty that is bringing people there in the first place many times politicians value that natural resource at zero dollars or they dramatically undervalue it yeah i mean i think you know for for surfing um and this is why we take the approach to put my like save the waves, like salesman hat on. That's why we take the approach of, of using surfonomics as a tool is because like surfing does have a lot of value. It brings a lot of value to communities. And, um, you know, I think like people overlook it because they're like, Oh, it's just a bunch of hippies out there, like farting around the ocean. What are they doing? You know? And, and, but when you, and that's true for some places. And I think, I think we kind of have like a jaded view in the U S of, of what surfing is around the world. We're like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, like I'm a surfer. I surf. That's my recreation sort of, you know, if you're like, I'm a skateboarder, I skate. And we tend, we tend to think of it as like, yeah, that's the skate park that I choose to go to is the ocean. Whereas I think like, you know, it's very recreational or some people are like, Oh yeah, it's how I like to spend my weekends, you know? So it's like, it's very recreational and yeah, there's an aspect of economy to it. But when you get out of the U S and you're in a developing country and you know this, you know, better than most, you start to see that like surfing is like a huge part of the economy. It's like, what's your choice here? You could be like a fisherman. You could be, you could work for some giant, you know, palm oil plantation, or you could work in the surf economy. And those are like the three options to be there, you know? And so I think that's why I feel like the work that we do is actually important on a global scale is that, is that we are like, we are dealing with, you know, people's livelihoods, I think to a degree and helping improve those and also creating livelihoods that, that protect the coastal environment. And so I think we miss that a lot of times in the U S is that like, like, holy crap, when I go to this faraway place, when I go to Fiji, you know, and there's like, I don't go to places where there's no wave and what are those guys doing? You know, subsistence stuff. It's like a hard existence. And so like surfing becomes a very, very important, like dollars and cents question to communities around the world. And so, you know, I think it's important to be able to like show that because I still think like people don't, people don't get the magnitude of surfing in yeah. terms of economics. No, absolutely. It's, it's hidden in plain sight, but, uh, you know, a lot of times the fisherman who's taking you out to the wave that's way out on the other Island or something that you can't paddle to and you're paying 20 bucks to do it mm-hmm. is how much they were making in a day or two before that. Yeah. Um, wh- but what is it that you really do? As, because this is kind of like, I know this what? is going to take a whole podcast to really sure. get through it because it, it is more complicated than a lot of, very, uh, than what a lot of organizations do. Yeah. So there's the surfonomics aspect of it. So you go through and will work to value, um, natural resources correctly, mm-hmm. uh, 
fill me in on the rest. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we got to take the, the global perspective. Like, what are we actually trying to solve? You know, and I think that from like, you'll probably ask this later on, but, you know, from a nonprofit standpoint, it's like, well, why do we exist? What are we actually trying to improve? You know, and I think, I think when you think about it in that big picture, 30,000 foot level, like we're really trying to improve the coastal environment and really focus on the surf zone where, you know, the land meets the sea. And surfing is the vehicle to be able to do that. Um, and so, and then what does that look like when we think about like, what are the issues that confront that place? I mean, you know, we, we try to be a little bit refined about what that is. So we kind of see like a pattern of things that we see over and over and over, you know, across the world. It's like coastal development is probably the biggest one. And that's the one we're probably, you know, most known for. But then we also think about, okay, well, water quality, you know, watersheds and water quality affect that surf zone immensely and the ecosystem that's there and the recreation that's there, you know, so. Dude, I, I was on a, a podcast the other day with this guy, Chris Ryan, and I was talking about the importance of watersheds. Didn't, didn't Bradley Cooper play him? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Who is there a different Chris Ryan? No, I, I, the guy who, Chris he, Kyle is... Oh, Chris, was, Chris Kyle. I think that's his name. Chris right? Kyle, rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I, no, no, well, I, this up. is going to get back to... It was. Just, it's just a little tangent on uh, on your point about watersheds, mm-hmm. but we were doing the, the episode in Topanga Canyon, mm-hmm. and I had, never, I had never really spent much time in Topanga Canyon, and then I went out later that day and was looking at the wave Topanga Canyon and was reminded that the only reason that wave is there is because there's a watershed up the beach. Same with Malibu, same with trestles, same with all these good waves in Southern California, in Santa Cruz and all over the world. If you want to find a good wave on Google earth, you look for watersheds. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's totally right. And, And you and I have talked long about that. We, we walked around down San Miguel and Baja and like looked at the watershed, which is badass. <laughs> like we walked up there and we were like, holy shit, there's some radical stuff back here. But obviously like that's what makes the wave there. You know, so I think like going back to my point, like starting to think about those things, what, what makes the coastlines function as they do is, is huge. And so watersheds are tied to water quality. Water quality is tied to the health of surfers and other things, you know. Right. Ecosystems. <laughs> yeah. Lots of stuff. Yeah. Well, we tend to live in these little bubbles. And like you were saying, even recreationally, like if you're going out to surf a place in Southern California or something, it doesn't necessarily feel like you're truly interacting with nature in the mm-hmm. same way that you would be if you're surfing up in Canada. But yeah. it still matters. Having those estuaries, having healthy watersheds, it's a, it's a whole connected ecosystem. I don't care how much cement you're living in you're still interacting with nature on a daily basis even if you don't know it i'll say i'll say one point to that effect and then i'll bring it back to just sort of like describing a little bit what we do and you know how how do we think about this but you know i think like i have a i have a bias towards like surfing in wild places because you know like i grew up in washington and like the coast is not friendly and it's not like the beach like when you're like yeah we're going to the beach it's like (laughs) You're going to go put on your foul weather gear and you, like, you get a hug. Godspeed. Young yeah. You're going like, to like, light a fire, you know, like it's like a whole, pro- it was a whole process. I Sharpen a spear. <sighs> yeah. You, you just kind of like, you know, so I think for me, like I have this part in my mind where I think that like surfing is an outdoor activity 
and it's like you're in nature because that was sort of the coastline where I grew up, you know, and it was not like an easy, it wasn't like a, a super simple place to try to figure out how to surf. I mean, like it took me forever to like get to the coast and be able to go on any sort of regular basis. So, but when I, when I think about that, so I really think of like surfing in terms of ecosystems and wild places. And I think that kind of biases the work that I do, you know, at say the waves, whereas somebody that grew up in, uh, you know, like Huntington beach and it's basically like a parking lot with a wave. Sorry for all of sorry, boys and girls in HB, but we're going to keep picking on you. I was going to, I was trying to think of something Hermosa. I don't know. I just a Southern California <laughs> beach break and there's nothing wrong with no, that. I think it's isn't. great. It's like you, I mean, somebody got bit by a shark down there just recently. I know. So. I was just down there when that happened. Yeah. So there's wildlife. So it's still, you know, it's still part of the wilderness, but nature is just checking you. Hey guys, we're still here. You know, so I don't know. I've, I thought more about wild systems and, and how does surfing interface with like wild systems. And so I think that kind of informs some of the things that we do, but, but going back to the first, you know, like going back to that ecosystem that I have like in my mind, what are the things that affect, you know, the intertidal zone, the surf zone, the place where waves break, you know, aside from, from like coastal development changing, you know, the shape of the coast and a lot of other things and water quality. I think the other big things that are kind of coming down the pike that we can't ignore are like, you know, trash and marine debris. Like before I never gave it a lot of credit. Like I thought it was a good way of educating people like, yeah, trash is, you got to pick up trash. It looks bad on the beach, but it didn't feel like it was a systemic threat. It was like, this is like leftover stuff from you being sloppy. This is easy to change. But I feel like we've gotten to the point where like it is a systemic threat, the amount of plastic and trash that's in the open. And so I've kind of had to my eyes open to that, to be totally frank with you. Um, but yeah, so I guess continuing down that way, you know, the other things that we tackle are like, and, and this is another one, a big one that's coming. We're starting to see it now is like sea level rise and coastal erosion um, and how that ties to climate change that's going to alter our coastlines big time, you know, and change like, you know, all, all the, of the waves, all those have. Malibu beach houses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You mean the, the new Venice? <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Yeah. Erosion is massive, man. People don't give it the credit, but I mean, that is, that's one of the main issues with climate change is that uh, there's a bunch of people living somewhere and mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to fucking live there anymore. Right. And a lot of times they don't have the money to be able to move. So you have this influx in places like, like India, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're going to have tens of thousands of people all moving into cities that aren't set up for it. Um, and, but I, and I do think that, that coastal erosion is one of those, one of those kind of slow, it's, it's so slow moving that we don't give it the same. We're not afraid of it in the, in the same way that we're afraid of a great white shark attack. Cause that happens quickly and we can see it, but the dangers globally of it, um, are still very much real. Well, I think you have to separate them out a little bit, you know, like coastal erosion is, it hap is happening all the time. Yeah. Like the coast is eroding and the coast erodes and it builds back up and there's different, you know, it's super dynamic. But as you see, you know, a lot of infrastructure that's been built along the coast, when that starts accelerating, which it's doing right now, and you're having big episodic things like I think about here in town like you walk along Westcliff Drive right and it, every time there's a storm it like half the road blows out and there's like holes and even to go to the lane right 
we we looked underneath the the lighthouse has like a tunnel almost underneath it like they're gonna have to move the lighthouse or something like what are you gonna do with the lighthouse i know it's put like it in a, the field dude, it's like a like, scene out of the goonies you go in there i expect you, to see a pirate ship and you're gonna be able to like <laughs> you're gonna be able, you guys <laughs> you're gonna be able to like take off at like saber jets and surf through this tunnel at the lane and like pop out at the slot and then whoa dude you're blowing up our secret spots sorry saber jets it's okay i haven't surfed that wave since i was like no, 10 no, years old it's no, a horrible wave no everyone, everyone go there yeah <laughs> uh yeah it's, uh, it's 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 on the east side right no okay. you have something in your eye you're winking why are you why are you winking oh, at I, me nick i thought we were recording this in the video <laughs> no okay anyway what are you doing what are we doing we get back to let's we'll, get back on i let's got get back track. on short so track. this has been the longest explanation of what save the wave does which is usually my elevator pitch but you know we've got develop coastal development right watersheds and water quality trash and marine debris sea level rise and coastal erosion Coral reefs is a big topic that you've talked a lot about. We haven't done a lot on it, but we're, we're kind of working in the background and then access to, you know, our beaches and our coastal resources. So those are the big issues that we see at save the waves that we tackle. And then how do we do that? You, you know, we kind of are like back ending our way into this, but so we have three big strategies, which are our protected areas. So legally, you know, enshrined areas where the waves have, you know, basically like legislation behind them or, you know, or an area that's protected the economics of the coastline and then direct sort of grassroots action. And so those are like the three strategies that we use. And then under that are our programs. Like you mentioned, surfonomics goes under the economics bucket. World surfing reserves is our, our big program under our protected areas. And then, you know, an endangered waves program is our kind of direct action, which, you know, that's evolving a lot right now. And we're working on some really, you know, what I consider interesting shit on like both ends, you know? So if you were to ask like, Nick, what are your two priorities for the next year or so? I would say growing the world surfing reserves and, uh, using big data and technology to activate surfers as like a network around the world. So, uh, first let's take go, to sur- world surfing reserves. What does that mean when you designate a world surfing reserve? So when we, you know, we, um, the program world surfing reserves really focused on the sort of the best, most iconic spots around the world, um, to be protected sort of in perpetuity. And I think it works on a lot of different levels. Um, currently there are nine. So Malibu, Aracera, Portugal, uh, Manly beach, Australia, Santa Cruz here, one Chaco in Peru, Baia de Todos Santos in Baja, Mexico. Um, well, I'm getting lost in my, my timeline here. Uh, Chile and Punta Lobos in Chile. And then the newest two are the Gold Coast in Australia and Guadalajara in Brazil, which is kind of southern Brazil area. Uh, what we do is we take applications from all over the world. Um, we vet them. We have a big vision council that sorts all of these different applications to kind of make sure they meet the criteria. Um, and then once they're approved and we approve right now one per year, um, we then begin working with the community to put together what's called a stewardship plan. So we, we bring together different elements of the community. So the surf community, the environmental like NGO community, local government, local business, and like 
you know, academia, if it's there. So like university researchers and stuff like that. Um, we construct this plan to really tackle like what are the, you know, cause sometimes you can protect an area, but you might not solve the chief problem. Like you can, you know, protect the Monterey Bay, but you're still going to have water quality issues like on land. And so we try to have a comprehensive plan that includes both. Let's try to protect an element of it legally. And then let's work through like strategic plans to solve some of these problems. Right. So is, is one of your goals with the world surfing reserve to sometimes change laws around water quality or development? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, it has to be tailored to each place because there's no way as an, like an international organization, we can parachute into your country and be like, this is protected forever. Yeah. And you're like, wait, I had my house. I, you know, <laughs> like we, there's no way we can do that legally. It just doesn't work. And so what we do is we work with the local community to figure out what is the appropriate way to go forward in protecting that. And so sometimes it takes different forms. So like, for example, you were familiar, we went down to Baja, right? And we were working on getting the uh, state park approved to protect part of that that reserve um at san miguel the watershed the watershed and the wave which makes the yeah the watershed and the and the wave which so the reason the the wave is good is because of the watershed and a big um reason for trying to turn it into a um a reserve a state park is so that people can build on the watershed yeah so if i think i can you know this gets super complicated for people um even for people that understand it you know really well but like so we created the World Surfing Reserve in Valle de Todos Santos. And then the legal protection aspect was the state park. And so that's the mechanism by which we legally protect it. And then on top of that, we're doing other things like, you know, dealing with an erosion issue at Trace Emes and dealing with water quality issues at other points in the reserve, working on with stuff on like the Isla Todos Santos, the, you know, spot out at the island. So there's a lot of different things that we, we can do to like really address issues and bring local community in. So, and again, I say that like we, 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 you know, we provide really the framework, but it's the locals that we're drive we're, they're driving the process with us. So we're kind of like, we're really helping facilitate a lot of stuff they want to see, not just being like, you need to protect that and you need to protect this and do that. Uh, yeah. I think that's a, a very important distinction that save the waves is a coalition. You're not yep. going in telling them what to do. You're going in there asking questions, asking yep. questions about what they need and what community they see for themselves in the future. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think like, like the world surfing reserve Mark is sometimes arguably bigger than save the waves. Like we go to, you know, we go to Australia and people are like, everyone's heard of the world surfing reserves. You know, we have a dedication for the world surfing reserve and, in gold coast and like the premier of Queensland comes out, which is like the governor, you know, like yeah, big time people are, are involved with it down there and they take it really seriously, which is, is a such a funny dynamic to be part of because I feel like we're here in the U S and we're in little Davenport. Right. And then, and we're compared with like really small local nonprofits, you know, like pretty, it's pretty small, like countywide stuff. And so it's kind of like we have this like dual role where we have to fulfill people's vision of like small grassroots nonprofit at the same time being like, you know, dealing with ambassadors and mayors and governors and like 
large scale international politics. And so it's weird as hell to be in both of those camps. To your point, <clears throat> a lot of times in California, surfers see surfing as this recreation, but in other countries, developing countries for sure, they see it as this guiding light that can get them out of poverty. And in a place like uh, Queensland, Australia, oh my God, their entire economy is based around it. Yeah. Surfer's Paradise, Mick yeah. Fanning shows up, yeah. all the biggest, like those guys are superstars over there. Yeah. Mick Fanning and Joel Parkinson walking around. It's crazy. They're like Tom Cruise. It's like Tiger Woods. It's or, like Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, Touche. <laughs> <laughs> You've got me. I don't even know. I don't know why. Just Michelle, compared Michelle. Mick Fanning to Michelle Pfeiffer. You know, they're, they're good looking people. Let's get back on track. We're back, we're back on track. I actually lost the track. Um, I guess my point was that we have to operate in kind of like both of these scenes where we're in California and like, People are like, oh, that's nice, saving the waves, you know? And then we're like, you know, our WSR people, which is World Surfing Reserves, our WSR people, like, in Peru, just met with just met with the Peruvian president to be like, we need you to support our claims. And they were like, was stoked. You know, it's like, oh, we're a World Surfing Reserve. That's very important. And, you know, I think, like... And it is. Why is it important? So you could put a name on a spot and designate it and cut the blue ribbon, but what actually happens for them and, and what are some big successes that you've seen happen um, as a result of designating World Surfing Reserves? Yeah, so I think that's, that's a good question. What are the benefits of being a World Surfing Reserve? I think, I think one is that you are recognized at, a, at an international level. Like your spot is, is recognized as being among world's best surfing locations. And I think best is subjective, you know, what's better than one place to other. You know, I think like if you're looking for straight wave quality, the world surfing reserves are maybe not the highest quality of waves, but we don't just rank on like wave quality. We rank on like environmental characteristics, you know, cultural resources and the local buy-in capacity of the, of the community. So you can weigh in other categories, maybe more than just wave quality. Again, going back to Peru, like Juan Chaco and the World Surfing Reserve there was done because of the like millennia of history with the Caballito de Todora, which is like their, I'm getting <clears throat> all stopped up here with my, I need to get a little water. That was a big sentence. Caballito de Totora. Caballito de Totora. It's my Spanish radio voice. <laughs> uh, Anyways, so I think like that's a big deal. It's a lot of cultural history. It's like 4,000 years of using the same technology and arguably the first wave riding, you know, craft. And again, for people that don't know, because I'm being a little esoteric here, is like uh, it's basically a reed sort of boat that fishermen have used over that whole time frame to go out and, and fish, but then they surf it too. So. Yeah, people in Peru argue that there were surfers there before Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, I, to me, it's not a debate. It's like Hawaiians came up with a surfboard, and, you know, that's where surf came from. Peruvians figured out how to, you know, ride waves standing up. So maybe they, you know, they have a paddle, so maybe they're first sups. And there were sups before surfing. I don't so know. it gets recognized, but then what? So have you stopped developments as a yeah. result of this? So I think have you helped with 
coastal erosion? What what actually happens after it's designated? Yeah. So in order for it to get designated, the plan that I talk about previously has to be approved and signed off on. Um, so they have this plan with a number of projects that are identified, you know, that are going to help get to their goals. So the plan really looks at like, what are the resources you want to protect? What are the threats to those resources? What are the underlying causes? And what are the strategies and then projects? So before you go in and designate a world surfing reserve, you've worked with community for a long time beforehand yeah. to um, learn what it is that they actually want to do. And, and you've developed this kind of future plan. Yeah. And then the designation happens. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me just go through the, you know, the benefits again are, are one, you're recognized on a global scale. And so you've got a lot of eyeballs that are looking at your place. So that, perf- that actually provides a layer of protection in and of itself. Um, because people are like, oh, you can't mess with the world surfing reserve because it's a world surfing reserve. Even if that may not, you know, legally restrict it. The second thing that's a benefit is creating this plan gives uh, the local community a roadmap and an, and an ability to address and prioritize their issues. And it also serves to actually get all of the members of the community on the same page. So they're all doing the same thing. Cause a lot of times we'll go into a place, you know, like we're in Mexico and we're talking with two groups that are helping us plan. And they're like, yeah, well, these are the things we have coming up. We have a beach cleanup on Saturday. And then the next group is like, oh, well, we have a beach cleanup on Saturday at the same place. And then they're like, why are these, why do we need these gringos to come in and tell us to work together? You know, that was like one of the statements. So I think it gets people on the same page. There's so many, there's just so often people are like in their own silo and they're not, they're not collaborating with each other when they could collaborate and do more. So I think it, it serves to like put people on the, all on the same, you know, platform. Yeah. And your goal isn't to solve the problem for them or stay in those communities. You want to give them the framework so that they can move forward yeah. themselves. Yeah. And then we identify places where we can actually, you know, help out. So like there'll be a couple of, of like big anchor projects that say they was will actually like dive in and help. So a couple of examples are, uh, you know, of like where, I would argue the WSRs have tangibly moved the needle is like, for example, in Chile, you know, we, we helped launch the Lobos Pro Siempre campaign, which then, you know, in turn, the, the Fundacion Punta Lobos was created. Um, on our side, we raised about almost $400,000 to actually buy the land at Punta Lobos and protect it forever with conservation easements with the foundation. This is the Fundacion. Um, and that, again, goes back to our plan. Like, all that stuff was baked into a plan that we made with the local community, like, three years ago. And so it kind of shows, like, that, you know, raising the money was good, and the next steps of, like, getting the land locked down, which is, is pending, is good. But the other thing that happened in that process was, like, we stopped a massive development from happening. And it, and yeah, there was a development plan for Punta Lobos. And for yeah. people who don't know what Punta Lobos is, you might have seen photos or video of the wave where there are these two huge rocks, the Moros. We're looking at a photo of it right now. And it's a big left point rake that Ramon Navarro is famous for surfing. And the whole area up on the cliff is undeveloped. Yeah. There's cactus, cacti, cactus? Cacti. I always say cactuses and people are like... <laughs> 
what is wrong with Pinche these? gringo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's gorgeous and it's undeveloped. Yeah. And there was a plan to put a huge hotel right on that point. Yeah, there was going to be like a seven-story hotel, underground parking, all the stuff. And you know, I think again, the it was a it was a group effort. Like there were so many locals that were involved in like shutting that down. But definitely, the, at that point, the World Surfing Reserve moniker and and process helped them, you know, be able to stop this like big huge development no it does a lot i was down in Butalobos lobos when the big wave event mm-hmm. took place there and when you get big names like mark healy and uh co rothman i forget who else made the final co rothman didn't make the final but uh, all the guy all the guys who are on the podium right mm-hmm. there's thousands of, of chileans coming in there they all put on the lobos por siempre t-shirts yeah and there was a ton of media around it and that single event does show that this place is important to more people than politicians might have thought or developers yeah you know i think um that that whole campaign was was really interesting to see. I was just back there like three weeks ago, and um, I think one you you go back and not to sound like a total hippie, but you go back and you're just reminded of the power of the place. Like you're there and you're like, okay, like this is iconic. You know, I don't know what it is. It's not just the two you know big ass rocks and not just the big waves. It's like you're like, this is this is iconic and you, I don't know exactly what it, what it is, but there's just like this, like kind of weird power to it. Well, I think that for people like you and I, um, who grew up in a colder climate, it very much feels like a part of history in your own home. Uh, Punta de Lobos, Chile is at the same, I want to say it's the same longitude and latitude as Santa Cruz. I don't know if that's correct, but it's on the southern hemisphere. It's it's mm-hmm. in the it's the exact same climate as Santa it's Cruz, California. Close. Yeah, it's pretty close. Uh, and, and there's no development there, or very very little. So you feel like you're going back. Yeah. In time. Yeah. Yeah. You. I mean, you you're going back in time, but you also feel like, you know, like I get the same feeling like you, you drive into Yosemite, right? And you come into Yosemite Valley and you go around the big curve and then it's like, bang. And there's just these massive rock wall faces and like this stunning valley. And you yeah. kind of feel like this, there's a little bit of me that feels the same way of like, I just like, I walk out to the, to yep. the Mirador and I look out at this place and there's the, you know, cactus over here. And there's just these two massive headlands and like waves just kind of like coming through and you're just like, it's a surfing. It's awe inspiring. It is. I mean, it's not a huge place, you know, and it's, it, there's like, there's a lot of waves around the world that are really good and there's a lot of long waves. Dude, I almost died there. I had my close, my, um, scariest near death surfing experience at Punta Lobos. I was surfing when it was really big and the Moros are on this little island that you have to mm-hmm. paddle across. So you kind of jump in the water and then you scurry up these rocks and then you're on this island and then you need to time it for there to, um, for the sets to pass. And then you, you scurry out and you jump in the water and then you have to make it out, um, over the sets. But when it's big, the waves will wash all the way up over the island and you have to scurry up onto one of the Moros on the sides there. Yeah. And I was uh, surfing it with Big Ben Wilkinson, yep. and it was it was big. It was like 
maybe like 20 foot faces and we had our big boards and there was a set coming and we scurried up the rocks there, maybe like six feet up and there were the waves were coming and it was like slow motion seeing these waves come at us. us, I'm like, okay, I think that we're in a good spot. We're in a good spot. These waves aren't going to hit us. Men's like, I I think we can get hit, mate. (laughs) And all of a sudden, this six-foot wall of water swept out both of our legs, and we got pinned to the back of the cave because there's this little cave zone around one of the moros. And I was pinned to the back with Big Ben on top of me. (laughs) I twisted my ankle and broke out one of the fins in my boards. It wasn't fun. It's all the funny thing about that place is like, I haven't surfed it big, big, because I just don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> it's like massive like that. Um, but even when it's not like super big, there's there's never like a su- super easy way to get. I mean, it's not like it's not like super death defying to jump out, but you're always like watching people just get like royally fucked up. Like, <laughs> you're like, oh man, like that guy totally mistimed this thing. <laughs> And now he's going through like this cheese grate. Like, I don't know where he's going to get out. Like, yeah, it's just every time you're, there's always like, Hey, you got to kind of like pay attention a little bit and like jump out and you know? Yeah. And it's funny. Cause it's like all of those different points. You kind of have to like, you have the same type of a scramble and whatever. Tell me about using big data. Using big data. Uh, so I'll shift. Yeah, well, you were, we were talking about the Surfonomics and World Surfing Reserve component of Save the Waves, which I think we pretty well covered what it does. Um, and that, But you said that that was one of two points, and yep. the second was using data to mobilize surfers. Yeah, so let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redirect real quick, because I think there's, there's a couple things I wanted to just like kind of show that you were asking me about the impact of the world surfing reserves. And so I think there's a couple, like I got into little Lobo stories, which I think are pretty nice to think about. And they're, they're listening. They're, 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 they're on a ride. Yeah. It's <laughs> a long podcasts. Uh, yeah. So, you know, for, the, I just, I think just showing kind of the scope of the world surfing reserves is, is important. Cause it's, it's more than just a couple places of like the impact that it's had. And I'll just touch on that quickly. And then, and then I can explain the next point. Um, I think when you look at the impact, like Lobos is a good example of that impact. Wanchaco is a good example of like stopping an illegal trash dump and then legally protecting it and stopping a series of groins that were going to be put in, like a series of jetties that would have destroyed the beach. Like that again, through the process of legally protecting it, um, helped to, to protect the beach and the community and like those fishermen. And that happened as a result of... Yeah. Uh, of the world dedicating it. Yeah. I saw a video of you when you were down at that trash dump in Peru. Yeah. It was gnarly. That thing looks gross. Yeah. It's, I think it's, they stopped. You're dumping. doing your best Kyle Tierman. You're like, I was, hi, I'm, like, I'm here at the dump. Yeah. I was, I was thinking. pointing, gesticulating wildly with your hands. Uh, I'm still doing that right now. Just, <laughs> I'm, I'm so much better for podcasts. Like, you know, you've got a great face for podcasts. I, I do. My, my gesticulation, my gesticulations aren't too wild. Like I haven't knocked over the microphone yet, but, um, going back to my main point, I think like those are big wins for the world surfing reserves. What happened in Australia with the gold coast was a big win, you know, wait, wait, that, but er, wait go yeah. back. I want to learn more about this dump. Cause I actually don't know much about it except for that little video that you did. It's come and gone, man. 
We we just we use the world surfing. Yeah, but you got to set up the problem to show me the solution. Sure, I don't really sure. know how big that dump was, but it looked like a, a big deal. So there was an illegal trash dump like on the coastline, basically like on the dunes, where the neighboring municipality in Peru was using it to like quote unquote stop coastal erosion. But they really just didn't want to drive as far to the other dump that was like way inland. Wait, they said that they were stopping coastal erosion by dumping trash on the beach. Yeah, by dumping fill. Like, so it was supposed to be construction oh materials. Oh my god! So that, and it was pretty funny. Like, I mean, <laughs> if you want to go, like, for, for a like hilarious anecdote, was uh, I went there with Felipe Pomar, the like Peruvian big wave surf legend from the '60s, and so me and him are like. You know, we'd like been to the grocery store and we're doing all this stuff. We're like, oh yeah, we should go to the dump to do some filming. And so like we show up and we're just like, holy shit. Like there's like just oil pockets bubbling up. Like I've never seen like trash upon trash within oil sitting on top of the trash and like dead everything, birds, rats, whatever. And then we would be sitting there like, interviewing and the dudes would just drive the dump trucks like past us back them up and they would just like flap open the back of the truck and just just dump like pure trash into the ocean and i'm like you know when we're talking about marine debris in santa cruz like they need to see this shit right now because this is like oh i know whenever i'm coming up the beach on california and i see a plastic bag or plastic bottle i'm like oh this is disgusting and then you go to a place like peru we're like (laughs) imagine being in huntington beach and having a garbage truck drive out onto the beach and dump the whole neighborhood's worth of trash onto the beach yeah I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. It's a yards and yards of, of trash. Like, and the crazy thing was like, like you want to learn about coastal processes really quickly. And you're like, yep. Okay. Here's erosion in action. It pulls the stuff. It scours the stuff off of this part of the coast. The current brings it from South to North and deposits it at a beach where there's a point and a backwater. So where's that beach? That's at one Chaco. So you would go surf. And like, I remember there's this one day where it was like, they had dumped a bunch of medical waste and it was like all condoms. I don't know. I don't know who got a hold of a bunch of con like used condoms, but it was like practicing safe sex jellyfish. It was like a jellyfish swarm of used condoms on the beach. (laughs) We're like, really? Oh my God. So it was, I mean, it was bad. Like every day they had a, they had a municipal crew from Wanchaka, like the city of Wanchaka would just hire like 10 people they'll go walk up and down the beach and, and then clean it up before tourists like woke up so oh my god so there's these things like i mean i think that was that was a good description of a win i think there's i think there's um there's some bigger ones there's like australia you know we use the world surfing reserve to put pressure on the mayor of the gold coast who had been promoting this big development of a cruise ship terminal for kira like they had this whole plan that was going to be a a a cruise ship terminal on top of the Kira groin where they were going where they were like oh but don't worry about the waves because we're going to put in a surf park on in the terminal and you guys will be able to surf and it was like wait, wait what, what? <laughs> are you serious so that i mean that's how that the gold coast kind of got started for a world surfing reserve is they 
they had, you know, this, this proposal went forward. The locals opposed it. This guy, Andrew McKinnon, who's, he's awesome. Just legend of the gold coast. Um, him and he rallied the whole crew and they were like, the thing that's going to stop this is a world surfing reserve. And you know, whether or not that was true was, it was, which it did. Um, it was really important because they galvanized, like they got like 2,500 people out on the beach. They spelled out WSR in people at Kira, like before they even became anything. And we were like, Whoa, this is a big deal. Like, you know, and, and it was cool because during the dedication, like we, you know, we pressed the mayor, we said, uh, so dedicating this means there will be no cruise ship terminal on the Southern gold coast. And he said, that's absolutely right. We need to protect our surf resources. I could probably imbridate the mayor if it makes it. That's absolutely right. We're going to absolutely protect our gold coast beach resources, our surf amenity. That's what he called it. It's great when you give him, uh, give him the opportunity to be the hero. Yeah. No, 2,500 people. Well, it helped. It was an election year. Um, and you know, and the gold coast itself is not spared from this project. They're trying to put it up like on, um, the South Stradbrook Island and stuff like that. So it's not gone away, but it's not destroyed Kira. Cause if you're going to put something on Kira, you're going to destroy, you know, green Mount rainbow Bay, snapper rocks, like the whole stretch of coastline that brings in like, that's why it's so stupid. It brings in millions of dollars to the gold coast economy with like the contest and all of the different surf brands. And like, you think Kelly Slater is going to maintain his apartment there? If you, you build a cruise ship terminal, no way. So, right, but again, there aren't those numbers. There are those numbers. Well, all, well I mean, you have created the surfonomics studies to show how much surfing sure. brings into these before these yeah, places. You're right. But were there those numbers before you did a surfonomics study? Um, there were from like a long, long time ago. Cause they're actually pretty good at measuring stuff and doing economics on gold coast. But there, I mean, again, it's, it, it shows like, I think a lot of these big projects, like they're not economically viable. They're most of the time it's somebody is going to benefit from it. So somebody has got to deal with some construction company and then some other concession. And so it's, it is always like a, like snatch and grab type of a thing. It's not for the larger economy and the good of the people that live there and like, you know, producing jobs, but they use that argument. But again, it's something like you have a deal with this person that's going to build this thing. That's going to get that money. So they're trying to get you to build this thing. And how many of those projects don't work out too, where you will be driving through a town in Mexico and there'll be a half built jetty yeah. that ruined the wave, but now no one's benefiting from it. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, yeah, just think about our drive down to like, you know, San Miguel or whatever. And it's just like, well, yeah, there's only half the floors on that building. And now you can't get to this wave anymore. You know, all Baja, Baja Malibu area, all that kind of stuff. It's like, dude, they don't work out all the time. It's because somebody had some great idea that got this concession to do this thing. And then they, even if they followed through, you know, it's like, you think the people that live there are getting money because of this? No. Cause they get sold the same bill of goods all the time. Like 
like, look, we can make your life better. It's going to be so much better because we're going to have this thing that's a big economic engine. It's going to be great. You should really be for it. It'll be helpful for you. And then in the long term, it's not, you know, they got sold a bill of goods. I would argue that's the developer. Like it is, it is the classic like bait and switch developer type of thing. And then when you think about it again, at like this meta scale, like what big, huge developer has just done a giant bait and switch job with everybody. We're going to make, we're going to make it a great again. Absolutely. How great and, is it? and it's hard to get that back. Yeah. After there's a big development, it's very rare that you get the natural environment back. And it's much easier to stop it at the source than it is to have all these yeah. half-built hotels and half-built jetties and then put a bunch of money in to try and restoring them, uh, yeah. restore the natural environment and down the line. I, I don't think like whole scale, like I'm, I'm not against development. I'm not, you know, like super hardcore on anything. I'm just sort of like sensible, like let's look at it sensibly. And when I look, when I look at some of the different coastlines around, we're sitting in Davenport right now, right? And we, you just drove 15 minutes through complete open coastline and all that stuff. You know how much more value there is for Santa Cruz in the long term because they're sitting on the edge of this open protected area of coastline than if this was like a bunch of resorts and, you know, casino well we would probably wouldn't have casinos but i like <laughs> but, the idea <laughs> yeah well that would actually be kind of yeah, awesome some casinos uh but you know like it wouldn't be it would just be like whatever extra stress of coastline sure it's cool to look at the cliffs and stuff like that but you know and you would make somebody would have made money like in real estate speculation but people have also made money based on the value of santa cruz because it's a nice place to live and so i think you know, I think there's a, there's a tension between those two of like, for me, it just, I, I'm stoked to drive that drive every day. And there's like a piece of me that gets excited that I can show my kid the same drive that I've been taking or, you know, the same beaches up here and they're not going to be drastically different. And that's a, something that's nice to be able to think, you know, cause now I have to start thinking multi-generationally. I'm like, what's this kid going to see in his lifetime, you know? And not that it has to be the same thing that I see, but I think like the things that are good about the world that I live in deserve, he gets at least a shot at seeing, you know? So I think that part's like, I guess kind of why I do my job. I like that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, I just cried a little bit, by the way. I'm deep. <laughs> I don't cry. I work out. <laughs> it's just dusty in here. Yeah. Uh, tell me about big data. Big data. So, you know, the other part of our, our triad of strategy at Save the Waves is, is like grassroots action and what the individual person can do. Um, we get so many people that have reached out to us and being like, hey, Save the Waves, I love what you're doing. How can I help? How can I make a difference? And we're like, uh come to our event. You got a million bucks. <laughs> uh, donate money, which people are still welcome to do. Uh, but you know, it's like, but that simple thing that really fulfills the need of like being part of it and being like as a steward of your own resources was, was a need that's unfulfilled. And so we started to kind of look at the, just the sheer numbers of surfers around the world, which I think the latest study that I read was like, 
There's a, a there's, very funny bug on the Yeah, there's a bug on the right microphone now. right now. I'm trying not to wave it down or smash it. I love nature. No, just Here. keep it going. He'll chill. He's, chill. he's oh, good. He's, he's part of the interview. Hi, buddy. Oh, whoa, we almost flew in the Dude, mouth. I was hanging out with Greg Long the other day, and I saw a black widow in his surf shed, and he fucking took the thing outside. I was like, ah, black widow, kill it. And he's like, no, no, here, get a cup. He took the black widow outside and let it, let it live. It's Greg Long. He's legend. <laughs> Dude, That's, I don't know how I feel about that one. I'm still kind of reeling from it. You got the heebie-jeebies. I just got the heebie-jeebies telling that story. Yeah. Ugh, black widows. <laughs> Sketchy. They're so thick. They have this thick body and thick legs. What? I thought they had like skinny little legs, but like a big. No, but they're like black. they're muscly. I don't trust them. Well, they're poisonous. Yeah. So you got that going. They're on. like a, they're like the meth head in the shadows. You can't they really are. see them. They're they're not like a daddy long legs. They're out in the open. They're like, hey, what's up? I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm actually really poisonous, but my mouth's not big enough to bite you, so it's all good. Not hiding anything. Black widows are they're skirt. They scurry. Yeah, they, they they stay themselves. I don't fucking trust them, man. I'm not that worried about them. I like black, I like uh, Daddy Long Legs. They're kind of like the giraffes of the. Like, Hello. Of, if, yeah, there was of the a, uh, if there was a Daddy the Long Legs, world, they just kind of traipse around. Like they're always kind of like <laughs> yeah. running into stuff, and they're just they're kind of like the Kramer of the of the, <laughs> the Kramer. They're just like, they're like hey Jerry, you know, like they they. <laughs> You just kind of bumble into things. They're always in weird places. Like, why Why are you taking a shower with me? Yeah. What are you doing in here? Well, it's the first person you see in the day a lot of times, or the first living thing. So you're taking a shower, and you're like, today's going to be a good day. I'm going to ask for that raise. And the daddy long legs is like, you ask for that raise. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. And you're like, thanks, daddy long legs. Thanks, buddy. And then it trips I'll let you over. hang out. It's the only spider that can trip. When was the last time a black widow gave you an inspirational speech in the shower? I've never seen one in the shower. Yeah, me neither. But they give inspirational, like, uh, maybe that's why Greg's, you know, so good. Because he's got a black widow in his surf shed. And he's like, you're going to charge today, Greg. You're going to charge. <laughs> Sitting cross-legged. <laughs> having motivational. Don't, don't take the 9-2. Take the 9 <laughs> <laughs> uh oh, I think I've broken him. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> oh man. Oh, tell Did me about big data. About tell data? me about big data. Something about data. There are a lot of surfers. Oh man. Oh, I have the giggles. There's a lot of surfers. <laughs> I have the giggles. I'm gonna redirect here. So the, Please, the, the, the big data is, um, you know, there's, I mean, we, what I looked, there's like 23 million surfers around the world. And, uh, what I started to think about is like, is there a way for every single one of those people to like plug in? I like, you're just, <laughs> like you're just barely holding it together. All I can think about is like. How'd you come up with this surf data idea? The app for Save the Waves. I'm picturing Greg in his surf shed sitting (laughs) cross like getting advice from a fucking black widow. He's just meditating. Oh, God. Meditate. Oh, God. I'm crying. I'm crying. I needed that. Greg, Greg, I'll bring him back around. Greg was a motivation for this project partially as well. Um, But the idea was surfers around the world. Where's my damn phone? 
have pretty much everybody has a smartphone. Even if you don't have like freaking electricity. I'm not going to look at you anymore. <laughs> no, keep you don't to go turn around. Since <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll do the rest. I got this. <laughs> Okay, uh, people are leaving us in yeah, droves. They're like, fuck, I wanted to learn about what Save the Waves did. You guys are oh, talking goodness. about talking Black Widows. It's, good, it's, good, it's good. Yeah, good. dude, people have Luckily phones. People have phones. You're There's trash on the out, beach. Right? No, no, definitely not. Um, yeah. We're keeping so, it rolling. So we we have phones, and the idea is, like, can we activate this this network of surfers to really be, you know, stewards for all of our spots? And so, you know, just thinking about it simply, like everyone can take a picture of the gnarly thing that they see, upload it to a map. So it geotags the the picture, upload it to a map. And now we have a record of like what's going on around the world at beaches everywhere. So whether it's a trash issue, whether it's a water quality issue, whether it's like a, an erosion issue, we, we can see that and then we can share it with partners on the ground to be like, this is what's happening in your neck of the woods. Right, because you have a lot of people who have a issue at their local spot that no one knows about except yep. for them and their surfer buddies, but there's uh, liquid waste being dropped in from the restaurant above the cliff, and now there's this big gross cesspool on the beach, yeah. and no one's talking about it, and there's no way for them to get that information into the right hands Yeah, like until now. Yeah, I mean, part of me, you know, just having gone to a lot of these places and like seen the gnarly things, like I think part of the inspiration was, yeah, that Peruvian trash dump. I'm like, holy shit, this place is gnarly. And I took a lot of pictures of it and like, yeah, later on used them in some article or another or put them into like a film and showed people about it. But like, could I show people instantly and be like, this is what I'm talking about. This is a big deal. And then even share that out with my social media people. Like then we now have, uh, we have a tool to educate people. Like what are the issues in general? What are the issues in their backyard? How can they actually like, you know, be a part of that solution? So, so for me, I feel like this is going to be, uh, I don't want to say game changer, but it's going to be very, very helpful in like doing a better job at our job. Well, it allows way more people to be stewards yep. and get involved. Yep. So let's bring this back to an example of a wave that you're currently involved in, uh, which is just up the road at Cowles Beach, which was the first wave that I ever stood up on a wave. Yep. Um, and there's a big water quality issue at Cowles. So let's say that I go surf Cowles and I get a staph infection as a result of surfing there. Um, I take a photo of the sewage or I take a photo of what I think is the issue there Cowles it actually wasn't the sewage I want to let you touch on yeah, that yeah. but but tie into how this app could I'll, I'll use a better example it. okay that you also know of um and, and I'll talk I can talk about Cowles as sure. well because I think it's super important but um so like you kind of alluded to like Uluwatu right and Project Clean Uluwatu is doing great stuff over there yeah but if you had uh and the issue there is that there's a ton of liquid waste from the restaurants on the cliff that goes straight out into this cesspool. And then when it rains, it all rushes out into the lineup. Yeah. And it's like bl the gnarliest black water that you'd ever seen. They fixed it since you and I have probably been there. 
Um, they installed a liquid waste processing system. Yeah, they they hooked up all the warungs to the different, you know, to that that waste processing system. They've had a, a series of like wastewater gardens. It's it's really cool what they've done. So this is an illustrative example for a couple of reasons. I like that word, it was like an SAT word, illustrative. Illustrative. Um, so like originally having gone there, like I took a picture of it, right? And put it on social media and people were like, whoa, what is that? That's gnarly, where is that, you know? And that's like, this is behind one of the best surf spots, you know, in Indonesia or the world. Um, and so I think like, or thinking about dreamland, right? The other way that's down the way, they have another big cesspool, like on the beach there that I didn't take a picture of. And so no one's really seen it. And, and probably everybody goes past it is like, well, that's gnarly. But if we had an idea of like how big that is and like, when is it breaking out all this different, you know, where surfers can be that source of a data, they're motivated because they want to protect that place and not surf in gnarly black warung water and also be like, I'm contributing to something larger. And so there's a motivation for people to actually like take action. And with a smartphone, it's really simple to do that. It doesn't take much more than like 10 seconds of your time. Whereas like normally it's, you could write into us, there's this problem, blah, 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 blah. We go back and forth to vet it, to make sure that you're like serious about the problem. But now, you know, we can see what it is like instantaneously and share it with other people. And why I go back to project clean? Cause the other thing that we'd like to do with this project is like, yes, we want to document water quality issues, trash issues, you know, coastal erosion issues, access issues. But we also want to document solutions. So one of the things that I'm, I'm wanting to do is like, if there is an example of Project Clean Uluwatu and they have a kick-ass wastewater garden, that's a solution to this problem, take a picture of it and put them on the map as a picture or as a, as a solution and then you know address how people can get involved with that project so that we see now what are the problems, what are the solutions, and then we can also kind of see what are the gaps. Right, so it kind of, it saves you time <clears throat> if you are going to designate one of these spots as a world surfing reserve. You already have a lot of the data on what the problems are, what the solutions are, and how you can bring those groups together. Yeah, and I think you know again going back like the rest of the world versus California. Like here, we have tons of water quality monitoring data. We have tons of coastal data. We have tons of agencies that are working on it. We have tons of NGOs that are working on it. It's not to say that we don't have our challenges because we do, but in places that, you know, don't have a California coastal commission, don't have a, you know, an active EPA, don't have a heel to bay, a surf rider, a save our shores, a whatever. Um, data like this is super valuable. So I showed it off to like some of the Chileans down there and they're like, Oh my gosh, this one can be so helpful. Cause we see stuff all the time and we have nowhere to go with it. Like we'll maybe take a picture and then we have no place to send it. We have nothing we can do with it. So I think, um, like in a lot of places, there's a lack of data on what's going on in, on the coast and surfers are this, um, you know, basically traveling data point that goes to places that are really hard to get to for scientists or people that are monitoring the coast. So we could potentially, you know, as a group of people be like a really big force for coastal conservation and data to make, you know, to be able to share with agencies to make their job easier. And like, I mean, not to keep rambling on this. You want to ask a question? Well, I was just... Not about your spider, is it? <laughs> it's not, but I have been thinking about that. <laughs> oh, God. 
Are you afraid that the app might just turn into like chat roulette where everyone just starts sending in dick pics? Yep. <laughs> just get overwhelmed with hundreds of thousands There's gonna of There's going to be a lot pics. of like, like how many dudes that are like stab commenters in Western Australia are going to oh. just send like... Like, uh, we're summoning the demon right I now. Know. We need to stop talking about this. <laughs> no, we're building like, so one of the things that we're doing, we, we, we launched the first version of it. So we're out testing it right now. And then we're going to, we're going to kind of do a beta testing, um, time where we're just like, help us break this basically to like show us why it doesn't work. And one of the things like we've already thought about this, like how many asses are we going to see in these pictures? A lot. So we have like a flagging mechanism. It's sort of like. I think Instagram works in a similar manner. Like if you have something inappropriate, it's the user group that actually flags it. So we can be like, this is not it. So you can get, we can sort out a little bit of the data on like when you just get total bullshit right. to like cancel it out. I think that most uh, people will be earnest in using the app because it is important to a lot of people. It's not, um, it's not a, like novel. It's th- like, this is, people's homes a lot of yeah. times this is the wave that they've been surfing at since they were seven years old and this is the most important thing in their life and all of a sudden there's trash on it and they don't know why yeah yeah i think um you know i think one other thing that i worry about and maybe i'll ask for you is like a lot of these things there's obviously sensitivity around photos and surf spots and showing things um, what's the best way to mitigate people's sensitivity about like blowing up a spot while doing good for the environment? Yeah. I mean, Mike's on you. Mike's on me. Well, <clears throat> there is that issue, but I think that with a lot of spots, uh, locals are understanding when it comes to saving it and being mm-hmm. stewards of their own area. Um, I mean, the the locals are tend to be the best stewards of the area. Right. There's a, a secret localized spot in Santa Cruz that I won't name, but the locals are the ones who who set up. Is it cows? It's cows exactly. Okay. So the, the locals at cows are the ones who set up the benches there. They're the ones who tend to do the beach cleanups, and I, that's similar for most waves around the world. Yeah. So you, if you can get those guys on your team, and they should be on your team because you're providing them a tool and an asset, um, then you're going to be okay. And most of the names of most surf spots are up on Surfline anyway. Yeah. So I don't think that you're going to run into that issue too often. I mean, there might be some sensitive spots, but I think that by and large, people are going to be very grateful for this tool. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of self-selecting. It's like, okay, well, you don't want to show how good the wave is. Don't fucking take a picture of the wave. Like take a picture of the issue. Yeah. And where it is, and then we'll deal with it, you know? Um, yeah, but, I agree. But, ho- you know, hopefully people are able to sort of self-select and, and use it as a, as a tool that's effective. I mean, you know, I think, like, there's it, this project has been really too long in my mind. Like, it's taken so much longer than I thought. I've been, I've been like, working on it conceptually for, like, over two years. Um, but I do, I do have to give a shout-out to, like, a couple people that, that really like just helped kick it into gear. I think the first was actually like the folks at cliff bar. I was just like throwing out random ideas. I hadn't done anything on this. And I was like, well, I really want to make this app that does X, Y, and Z. And it'd be kind of cool. And they're like, okay, well we could fund you for a tiny bit to like have some meetings and do that. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then like once it's funded, even though it was like a 
a pittance of what we need in the long scheme. It was just like that psychological thing of like, you have to kind of like deliver for this person because you made a commitment to do it, made that it didn't fall by the wayside. So I, I made it like a priority in my, you know, kind of, do you still need additional funding to launch the app? Yeah, we're, we need to be able to build out the final like proof of concept. So it, it will be like, when it launches, it's like, it works, everything works perfectly. It's really good. So we're looking for more funding, you know? And I think like the next person that helped, you know, going back to Greg and his spider and his closet, but he, he, you know, he helped kick down some of his own money to do it. And that was just like, is, it was pretty inspirational to just be like, dude, this guy believes in like this idea and you know, like, it means something when somebody puts their own money behind something because it's like, you know, none of us on the kind of surfy nonprofit level have tons of money. And so when you like invest in something, it just means that you have a lot. And so it's like, I want to reciprocate that kind of respect, yeah. by not blowing it. <laughs> no. So no. I've been like, well, you, del- you, del- you deliver on stuff and, or, and I've uh, known about and been involved with save the waves for, nine years save the waves was the original fiscal sponsor of the first surfing for change video that i ever made and it was um a much um smaller organization then in regards to what you've been able to accomplish over these last nine years and having been a part of it it's super impressive and you you deliver on shit and i can attest for that that's the reason i'm having you on my show is i i believe in what you do because you've shown again and again that you can activate and deliver and you do more than just cut the yellow ribbon you work with these communities for years beforehand and years afterwards to do something that's comprehensive and will actually make lasting change yeah i mean uh, i appreciate that i mean you know whatever for whatever fucking reason our lives are somehow intertwined a little bit here like you got your start at uh at save the waves to kind of like do your, you know, and I think it goes back to that. It's like, you had this crazy idea and you were whatever, 17, 18, 18. Yeah. And I went to a few other uh, organizations beforehand to try and yeah. be a fiscal, to get them to be a fiscal sponsor for people who don't know what, what a fiscal sponsor is. Uh, you need to be a 501 C three registered nonprofit to yeah. receive grant money. Uh, and have it be donations, ta- yeah. and have it be yeah to receive donations and have it be tax deductible for the donor. However, if you are an individual like me, or I was an eighteen year old kid, I didn't want to set up a nonprofit, yeah. which is a very cumbersome process. What you can do is get a fiscal sponsor where they take a certain percentage of the donation. And it, the donation is then written into the nonprofit's name, and then they give you the funds. Um, and it's a really great way for people like myself who was just starting out to be able to get a, a kickstart um, yeah. in the right direction. Yeah. And I think, you know, and so that was, that was interesting for you to kind of set you on this trajectory of, because I mean, arguably, maybe not, but arguably had that not come together for you and you were like, ah, fuck it, I'm going to go surf you could be a pro surfer and that would have just been your one train. We wouldn't be on these fancy mics right now. We wouldn't be 
you know, doing all of the different projects. <laughs> no, well, I, I do agree with you that it was a very formative time in my life, being 18, deciding yeah. what I was going to do for the next few years. Sure. And that first project definitely set me on the course of believing that I could make money and support myself doing documentary film. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's, that was interesting and kind of like launched you towards the way that you were going. And then obviously like, you know, a few years later, like what we would hang out, skateboard, drink beer, surf sometimes, what barbecue, yeah, just do street stuff and talk about shit. Basically what we're doing right now, minus the microphone. We did. Well, this is, this is a kind of nice origin stories that yeah. Nick and I lived on the same street and I had a half pipe in my backyard and Nick is a good skater growing up in Washington and we would be shredding my ram then we'd all of a sudden start talking about butler's curve of tourism <laughs> and i'm like damn you're a smart guy this is fun and then it led to you getting a job to be the executive director of save the waves yeah the organization that believed in me from the beginning that's right it comes it comes like weirdly full circle you know um but yeah i remember you yeah i remember you sent that to me and i was like you're like i think you'd be really good for this and i was like I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. And then I thought about it for a long time and I was like, you know, I had to think about a big picture. I was like, fuck, I might have a really cool opportunity to do something big here and like really interesting. And I'd known of the organization for a while. Like they'd done cool stuff, the surfonomic stuff I knew about, you know, I'd learned about it in grad school actually, weirdly enough. World surfing reserves, I sort of knew Maso Menos, you know, and then uh, the chili stuff I knew about what was going on, like the chili relief stuff because my brother was down there during the earthquake. Um, so I knew like Save the Waves had done stuff with that a little bit because it was really the only organization that was doing stuff in Chile. But you also had a good idea about systems because you were working for the water district beforehand, correct? I was working for the resource conservation district. So I was actually doing like yeah, I was doing a couple different things, but that my main job was the resource conservation district where I just got to like, if I could get it funded, I could make up whatever program I wanted to do. So it was pretty, it was pretty fun. Yeah. And you were looking at resources from that big overhead view in the same way that you are now. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's obviously different, but we, we were, takes a similar skill set. You know, I had like a couple different roles I had. I mean, that was my main job. And then I had, uh, I worked for this other little startup international nonprofit that did like, um, protected areas. So like parks, but between borders. So it was kind of interesting. It was like this idea you could get people to cooperate over parks. So I was doing that on the side. Then I kind of like had made some documentary films. Um, and so that was skaters in Uganda. Yeah. This Uganda skateboard union. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's another, that's like another story. But I, you know, I felt like when I, when I, I was like, I knew say the waves had done some really good stuff and I was always watching them, but I always was very talking to the microphone. I was very, you know, concentrated on like a lot of the, the local conservation stuff that I was doing. Yeah. But then when I, when I flipped around my head, I was like, this is a great opportunity actually, because you know, that this organization's grown a lot from where it started you know at the beginning it was just one guy it was will henry like passionate dude like fighting the good fight for his wave and and then it kind of kept 
growing from there. And, um, and then I, I looked at it and I was like, you know, the problem with my job now is that nobody gives a shit about conservation. It's boring. And like, nobody really pays attention. Like people pay attention in the conservation world or if you, you know, you know, twist their arm, they will, but water quality and stuff like that, like is not an exciting topic for most people. You know, water resources is not an exciting topic for people. Like conservation of our coastlines is sure it's important, but it's like not that exciting. And, and I, then I kind of thought about it through another lens and I was really like, you know, surfing is something I care about. And so like I gravitate towards what I care about. And then if what I care about is attached on to these larger, you know, important environmental issues, I'm going to gravitate towards that too. And so I was like, that works for me. And I know it's going to work for a lot of other people. And then just knowing that you could have like surfing be this tool for a big time conservation effort, you know, on a global scale was like really exciting. So then I just started like putting my head down and thinking about, well, what could we create in the long term, you know, on this really strong platform that we already have. And so I think that's sort of like, we're in that process now, which has been, it's been super, you know, super challenging and fun and like just sort of pushing you to your limits a lot of times, um, to get there. Cause when I, you know, I was doing my, I wouldn't call it preparation cause I was just drinking coffee, but I was thinking like, Oh, I talked to Kyle. What are we going to talk about? And, um, thinking about like when I first got into save the waves and then to like where we are now is like a very weird, it's just like, I was like, Holy crap. That was like four years ago. And I, I, I can't like speak so much of like, yeah, we've like crushed it. And we're this giant, you know, hugely successful thing, but just from my own experience, like I think I have to think about it just through my own experience and like the amount of learning that I've done. And then I was telling you this on the, on the run up, but like, um, starting off and in the first like four months, being like, okay, you are throwing a major fundraiser that you have to nail or, you know, like this is what the funding depends on for the rest of the year. A major like organizational, like a, a big organization of like stewardship and cleanups in Chile and a major like co-branding launch with Tom's like in the first like three months where I'm just like, uh, you know, coming in here, like all Yikes. like white eye, like, uh, where are the files? <laughs> right. Like, and you know, when it started, it was like, when I started, it was me and Gavin. And then our conservation person was, was like phasing out and we were going to hire a new person. So we were like two people like in the office, kind of like, what, what, what should we do now? <laughs> you know, like, and it, and it just, it feels good and to just have things like you're just slowly like you're gr- getting yeah, you're things. growing well now you have this nimble team you uh, the, the thing that i like to say uh, when i'm looking at an organization like yours is that i've kept score over the years right of of what it is that you've done and what it is that you're doing and what it is that you're con- going to continue to do right mm-hmm. and I love the quote, the environment is never saved. It's always being saved, right? But I do think that you have a super effective team now and you're doing a lot and it's, it's important work, man. You know, the, the last thing I think in the political climate that we're in, I think that 
there are going to be two avenues to really protect the environment and that's nonprofits. And I can't believe I'm, you know, really saying it, but it's nonprofits and it's business. And like, we're basically on a daily basis watching our agencies and our government just be chopped. And so like the two effective bodies that are going to be out there are business and nonprofits. And so like, if you want your resources conserved, like these are going to be the places that are going to do that for you. And so like where your taxes dollars went to preserve open spaces and health of the environment, and all that stuff, that's no longer going to be possible. So the cost of the, of preserving the environment that you like as it is now is going to be borne by us and by business, you know? And so like support responsible businesses and, support nonprofits that are having an impact, not just willy nilly ones. Hell yeah, man. Um, thanks for stopping by. Y- you stopped by me, but thank you for having me on. Yeah. I say that at the end of no matter where I am, like on a flight, I'm like, thanks for stopping by. <laughs> it's your catchphrase. <laughs> I guess I hate having fucking catchphrases though. All right. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> Thanks for having me by. I, I do appreciate it. And it's been, it's been really fun and funny. So thanks, man. Still here? Well, I'm happy you enjoyed that episode. Be sure and get in touch with Nick at savethewaves.org. And before you take off, please take two minutes and give this show a rating on iTunes. It's super simple. All you got to do is look down at your phone right now. Go to the far right. Click in the search button. Type in The Kyle Chairman Show. Even if you're already on it, it's going to take you to a new page. You're going to click that page, and you're going to see three options. There's details, reviews, and related. Click reviews. Give it a few stars. Thank you so much. I'm going to send you off with a song by my man Leo James, a.k.a. Bottom Feeder. This is Lovers Can Be Friends. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to check out more of his music. All right, I'll see you soon. We've got a bunch of good episodes coming out for you in the weeks to come. But for now, get outside, give someone a high five, jump in the ocean, have a fantastic day. That was much too loud. You must be more gentle. Try again.